spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hello and a warm Christmassy welcome to the final episode of 2017 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, episode number 13. I'm Paul, your host and the True Crime Enthusiast of the title, and as always, I begin by thanking you all for joining me. Your continued support means the world and helps make this possible every week. I hope you're all fine and ready for the big day, shopped out, wrapped up, and I bet you're already waiting for it to be done. It's a stressful time of year really, isn't it? But it's a good one once it's here, I'm sure you'll agree. Oh, to be five again and get the Millennium Falcon for Christmas. It's still one of the best presents I've ever had that. However you spend Christmas this year, I sincerely hope that it's a happy one for you. Just remember to take the giblets out of your turkey, or else it'll be a Christmas you won't forget really. Rather than go off on my own bat as I do each week, This week I've entered into a cross-promotional plug with another podcast I was approached by, who very kindly offered to plug the true crime enthusiast in the same way. Have you guys ever watched Law & Order Special Victims Units and wished that the lawyers in it were a bit more sarcastic, a bit smarter and a bit more foul-mouthed? If you have, then check out a podcast called Getting Off. It's hosted by two criminal defence lawyers called Jessa Nicholson and Nick Gansner. And in it, they cover crimes that have captured national media attention in a way that's well-informed, but with a touch of humour that's as black as a raven's wing. It's been described by listeners as undisclosed with a slightly evil sense of humour, or my favourite murder with law degrees. So it's quite a calibre there for comparison, and it's unique because of the perspectives that they can offer into the justice system and the world of true crime. You can find them on your usual podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and look them up on social media under the handle Getting Off Pod. It's well recommended and I'm sure you'll find something there that you can enjoy. So for the True Crime Enthusiast's final episode of the year, as I said last week, this week on the podcast I'm taking a look at some cases, some unsolved murder cases from the UK city of Birmingham. They're all savage beyond belief crimes, and it's relatively close to the anniversary date of each of the featured cases this week. As with previous unsolved cases we've featured on the podcast, what I'll do is recount what's known about the case, and then offer my own opinions and hypothesis based upon this. Listeners should be advised that this week's episode does contain descriptions of crimes that may distress, but as always, it's necessary to bring home just how horrific these crimes are. So with that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we look back at some cases of unsolved West Midlands murders. She would have been knocked unconscious, then a killer poured something over the body and set fire to it to kill her. It's a horrific murder and we are concerned because we're not getting the help from the public which we need. Those are the words of Detective Superintendent David Speak police officer who led one of the biggest ever murder hunts in the history of West Midlands police. It began almost 32 years ago and involved the brutal and bizarre slaying of a well-respected Birmingham general practitioner, 53-year-old Polish-born Dr. Danuta Kazmarska. It's a savage crime that remains unsolved to this very day, despite a massive inquiry at the time and subsequent reappeals over the years. Coniston Close in the Hall Green area of Birmingham has been a middle class area for many years, filled with spacious houses, 
several of them being three storeys. It's a quiet residential street, and in 1986, Dr. Danuta Kazmarska owned one of these houses. Danuta was unmarried and she lived alone, and was a general practitioner running a thriving surgery in the King's Heath area of Birmingham, having over 4,000 patients on its books. Polish-born, Danuta had begun practicing medicine in Birmingham back in 1971, and by 1985 had built up such a large surgery through her professionalism, a care in nature and her impeccable medical record. Danuta, or Dr K, as she was known to patients and surgery staff, was popular, well-liked and respected. The new year of 1986 was just three weeks old when firefighters were called to Danuta's home on Coniston Close on the afternoon of January 22, 1986. Concerned neighbours had contacted them after witnessing smoke drifting into their homes and it was sourcing from Danuta's house. Firefighters who made a forced entry discovered a disturbing sight when they did. Danuta was found in the middle of the kitchen of her home. Clearly dead, her body had been set alight and was severely burnt, almost beyond recognition. The kitchen was in state of disarray and was smoke damaged but not so much that firefighters could see that it was severely bloodstained. Danuta's burns were so severe that a positive identification had to be made through a dental record comparison. She had also been gagged with a tea towel and left lying on the floor. As a murder inquiry was launched from an incident room at Spark Hill Police Station, the post-mortem on Danuta Kazmarska was carried out. Cause of death was determined as being from at least seven blows to the head, which had fractured her skull in several places and had probably been carried out by a killer using a heavy blunt weapon that was most likely an axe. She had been gagged with a kitchen tea towel to stifle any screams, and her body then set on fire, although it's never been revealed what accelerant was used to cause this. The murder inquiry got underway with extensive house-to-house inquiries, a detailed examination of Dr. Kazmarska's life, relationships and work, and a detailed forensic examination of the scene carried out. But the inquiry was to raise more questions than provide any possible motives or solutions. For the level of obvious violence in such a savage and horrific murder, surprisingly no one in the vicinity was reported as having heard any screams or sounds of a struggle. No one had been seen entering or leaving the house, and there was no evidence of a break-in, suggesting that the killer was either known to Dr. K personally, or it was someone that she had allowed access to the house and had no reason to suspect, perhaps posing as a bogus official. The killer had also locked both doors when leaving the scene and taken the key away, as a duplicate key was never found. Also, nothing appeared to have been taken, no cash or valuables were missing, The rest of the house was clean and tidy and showed no signs of any ransacking, plus Dr K's handbag was found in the kitchen, untouched. Bizarrely, two empty champagne flutes were also found at the scene, and they'd been recently used. There was no bottle found at the scene, but the cork and foil from a champagne bottle was found in the kitchen. Had the killer taken the bottle away with him when leaving? Possibly because it had fingerprints on it. Police from the outset of the inquiry suspected that Dr Kazmarska was not targeted at random and that her killer was someone known to her or who knew her. However, this was a list of enormous proportions due to the 4,000 patients from her surgery on top of her family, friends and acquaintances. This theory was supported by information provided by her sister Irina who spoke to Danuta on the evening of the 21st of January and was told by Danuta not to phone back the next day because she had a visitor coming in the afternoon. Who was this visitor? Although she was unmarried and what could be classed as a spinster, the more police looked at her personal life, the more it became apparent that Dr Kazmarska had almost led a double life. Police discovered that in contrast to the respectable GP that was well-liked and respected by her patients and colleagues, By night, she frequented many pubs and bars in some of Birmingham's seedier areas, socialising with drug addicts, the homosexual community and the petty criminal element. She was also discovered to be a regular user of contact magazines, the kind used to meet people for a mixture of company and sex. Indeed, for all her professional and confident demeanour, 
Tanuta was described by one police officer who was on the investigating team as being a very emotionally insecure and vulnerable woman who sought love and affection. Although Dr. Kazmarska was described perhaps too sensationally as a Jekyll and Hyde character, was the killer someone from this Hyde aspect of her life? The murder investigation at the time was one of the biggest in the history of the West Midland Serious Crime Squad. A surplus of 150 police officers interviewed all of Dr. Kazmarska's patients, many colleagues and friends the length and breadth of the country, with more than 6,000 people being spoken to in total. Well-publicised newspaper and media appeals were made, appeal posters were published and distributed, and police staged a reconstruction in an attempt to jog any potential witnesses' memories, with a policewoman reenacting the last positive sighting of Dr. Kazmarska, which was walking home from the Hall Green Waitrose supermarket on the afternoon of her death. A televised reconstruction was also featured on BBC's Crime Watch UK programme. Still an own goal there, BBC! And Danuta's friends and family offered a substantial £5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer. But it all led to nothing, despite extensive inquiries and an impassioned appeal to the social circles in which Dr. Kalmarska moved in for information. No clear motive for her murder has ever been identified. A former lover and colleague of Dr. Kazmarska, her ex-surgery partner, Dr. Salim Naida, was arrested and questioned as a possible suspect in her death during the investigation. However, he was eventually ruled out of the inquiry and released without any charges. Also during the investigation, a very strange parallel with Danuta's death was revealed. Nearly four years before her horrific death, in 1982 there was another bizarre death at Dr. Kazmarska's house again involving fire. A long-term close friend of hers, 40-year-old London solicitor Thomas Gleason, was found burned beyond recognition in a bedroom, his body being so badly charred that it was near destroyed. Identification was only tentatively made from some shirt buttons and part of a shoe that survived the blaze. A March 1982 inquest ruled that the cause of death was smoke inhalation, and a verdict of death by misadventure was recorded. Quite unbelievably, actually, in the circumstances, I would have thought. However, as with Dr. Kazmarska's murder, information available on both cases is so frustratingly minimal that the accuracy of this can't be ascertained. It's easy to jump to the conclusion that there must be a connection. The odds of such a bizarre, violent death occurring twice years apart in the same house and not being connected surely stretches credulity but police investigated any connection between the two and found no evidence for this despite the almost incalculable odds it was another example of the many dead ends that just six months after the murder forced the police incident room to close senior investigating officer detective superintendent david speak said at the time it's a case which has all the ingredients of an Agatha Christie thriller. We are extremely frustrated. The killer is a cool, calculated person who covered up all traces and probably believes it's the perfect murder. It's been rather like looking for a ghost who went to the house and then disappeared afterwards. Apparently nobody saw him or her enter or leave, but we shall never close the file on this case. The crime has been reappealed on numerous occasions over the years, and detectives do remain ever hopeful of a successful resolution due to forensic advancements or new information forthcoming. Perhaps a conscience will finally get the better of someone and they'll come forward with a name or even a confession, or another piece of crucial information will come to light that will help bring Dr. Kazmarska's killer to justice. But this has not yet happened. So what then is known about the killer? Information available on this crime is extremely scarce, although it is one that I have been aware of for a considerable period of time. Due to the scarcity of the information, it's extremely difficult to ascertain anything about her killer. Instead, we can only make an educated guess. Dr K's life was examined in detail by investigating officers, and any immediate suspects were ruled out. But it remains likely that she knew her killer, perhaps from one of the bars she frequented or through one of the contact magazines she had used. Someone who never willingly came forward. As nobody was seen entering or leaving the house, 
it's impossible to say definitively if the killer was male or female, and no physical description would be available. It's more than likely to have been a male due to the level of violence used, however, one capable of extreme violence and cruelty almost to the point that it seems bordered on the maniacal. Yet someone who could think coolly, behave calmly, and who showed levels of forensic awareness. Police found no fingerprints, bloodstains, or DNA evidence left by the killer at the scene. The murder weapon and possibly a champagne bottle with fingerprints upon it were removed, and I believe that Dr. Kazmaska's body was set on fire to remove any forensic evidence possibly left by the killer. The killer was also able to restrain and silence Dr. K efficiently and without drawing attention, and to then exit without being noticed after the murder. This would also have been within a very short time frame from leaving the scene due to the discovery of the crime. After all, a fire doesn't have a delay on it, does it? These are aspects to the crime and levels that suggest this is an organised and experienced offender, and this was certainly not a first offence. So what then is the motive here? There's nothing reported as being taken, no cash or valuables stolen, and Dr. K was financially well off. After her death, her estate was valued at more than £200,000, which is a massive amount in 1986. It does not seem to be for monetary gain or for a simple purpose of robbery. She wasn't reported as having been raped or sexually assaulted, so a sex crime is unlikely to be a motive also. Indeed, the level of violence involved in the killing suggests that the murder was more of a personal motive and premeditated. Dr. K's killer came armed with an axe and possibly an accelerant. The use of fire would also support this motive. Surplus to removing any forensic traces, it could have been used to also disfigure or defile Dr. K further, which would suggest someone with a grudge against her. Is not reported if Dr. K had had sex or not on the day she died, but Champagne would suggest a romantic meeting. Was it an argument with a lover that she had? Or was she perhaps involved in an affair? Was it a casual sexual encounter that she'd arranged? Or was it possibly someone who had met her through the clandestine circles she socialised in, who hoped to take advantage of her status as a medical practitioner, as a source of access to drugs? Again, these were all theories that were pursued as lines of inquiry, but that ultimately led nowhere. More questions and theories than answers. So piecing together what little is known about the case, it appears that Dr. K's killer was a male known to her, possibly a lover or casual sexual partner, and certainly someone that she felt comfortable enough with that he knew her home address and she was comfortable enough to be alone in her home with. It's likely that this was a person with a history of offending and violence, but who could appear outwardly normal. It's chilling to consider that this person came armed with an axe to commit murder, and was possibly a drug user or someone with a mental illness, although this would not be so debilitating that the person required full-time care. The possibility remains that the killer himself is now dead, or if he is still alive he would be at least middle-aged to elderly today. He may now be in prison for another offence, perhaps he's hospitalised, or he may live abroad or in another part of the country. It is possible that this man has killed before, and possibly went on to kill again, and some possibly connected cases will be the subject of an episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast in early 2018. It is likely that after such a lengthy passage of time, any advancement in the detection of Dr. K's killer will be because of a forensic breakthrough, which may in turn lead to a DNA database or a familial DNA match. This, of course, depends on the quality and indeed existence of any items retained from the crime scene in 1986 that may provide these samples. The champagne flutes spring to mind as the most obvious and likely source to me. Barring that or a confession forthcoming, it's unlikely that this offender will ever face justice. It's a very tragic case and one with as tragic a postscript also. Danuta's father, who at the turn of 1986 was already gravely ill with cancer, died just six days after Danuta was murdered. Perhaps the murder of Dr. K had caused her father to lose the will to live also. Danuta's remaining family continue even today to live in torment with the knowledge that her killer has never been brought to justice. Her sister Irina, interviewed by the Birmingham Mail some years after the murder, said, 
I dread the day someone is found because I feel I will probably have to go to court, but at the same time I want the killer to be found. I was knocked for six when it happened. On the night before she died, she phoned me. There was a cooking program on the television which I wanted to watch, and she phoned me in the middle of it. I said I'd call her back, and she said don't call in the afternoon because she had someone coming. I was to call her the day after. Because I was in such a hurry to watch the program, I cut the conversation short. That was a killer she was meeting. I'd always had a premonition my sister would die tragically. For the second case focused upon this week, it's nearly two years later now, and we've moved to the Spark Hill district of Birmingham in December 1987. A vicious and cowardly murderer again shocked the city, this time by carrying out a horrific double murder. The victims were two elderly sisters whose lives were senselessly taken in their own home in a brutal murder that netted the killer a haul consisting of nothing more than a few petty items. Police hope that as the 30-year anniversary approaches, someone out there still has vital information that can bring this monstrously evil killer to justice. Alice and Edna Rowley had run their shop on the corner of Greswold Road in Spark Hill for more than 50 years, and there were familiar figures in the neighbourhood, often seen driving their old Morris Minor back and to from the local cash and carry. They were known for their charitable and kindly nature, often giving out free sweets to local children and regularly giving donations to local causes. Alice and Edna were creatures of habit, opening very early in the morning and remaining open throughout the day. So when on December the 23rd, 1987, the shop that stood at 94 Greswold Road remained closed by the mid-morning, neighbours become concerned. The sisters were both elderly, perhaps one of them had taken ill or one of them had had an accident. Concerned neighbours, who failed to get any response from knocking, eventually contacted police. When police arrived, officers forced their way into the shop and found a sight so tragic and shocking that it shook hardened officers. In the small downstairs living room, Alice was found lying on the floor, whilst Edna was found lying in her bed. Both were clearly dead, Alice having ligature marks visible around her throat, and Edna having severe bruising around her eyes. Post-mortems later determined that 87-year-old Alice had been strangled with a scarf or a towel, although it was never found and 77-year-old Edna had been beaten and smothered to death. All that had been taken from the premises were two boxes of chocolates, a bottle of Tia Maria, a battered brown leather suitcase, and a radio cassette player. The chocolates and alcohol were the sisters' Christmas presents to one another. Initial inquiries revealed that the sisters had last been seen alive in the shop the previous evening at 6.45pm and had probably been killed not long after closing the shop for the evening. The initial thought of police was that they had interrupted a burglary in progress, but this theory was dispelled with a closer examination of the scene. An untouched meal lay on the dining table, and there were no signs of forced entry to the shop or the upstairs premises. It appeared as though the sisters had been about to sit down to an evening meal when the killer had struck. Had he conned his way in on a pretense, or had the kindly sisters invited someone knocking on their door in, as they had a habit of doing? Over a hundred police were drafted in from across Birmingham as the subsequent murder investigation began in earnest, with house-to-house inquiries carried out in the surrounding area. A search of the shop and living area was carried out to determine if anything else had been taken, or any forensic evidence had been left behind by the killer. The sisters' backgrounds and lives were also looked at to determine if there was anyone with a possible motive for wanting to harm them. Police left no stone unturned in one of Birmingham's biggest ever manhunts, making more than 5,000 individual inquiries and taking more than 1,600 statements. The crime sickened police so much that a £10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer was offered by the West Midlands Force. This was a first of its kind for the force, and the assistant chief constable at the time, Tom Meffin, said, We certainly have not personally offered a reward before, and I cannot recall any other police force taking this step. However, 
This outrageous offence demands that we consider all avenues of investigation and assistance. I earnestly ask the public, including members and associates of the criminal fraternity, to examine their consciences, consider the nature of the killings and report their suspicions. But police didn't have much to go on. The search of the premises had revealed no forensic evidence, no blood traces, no footprints or no unidentified fingerprints, and a murder weapon was also never found. An item that was found, however, was an empty packet of Walker's Bits of Pizza Crisps that were a product at the time. This empty packet was found lying at the bottom of the stairs, and it was established that these type of crisps were not sold in the shop. Had the killer brought them with him? The origin of the packet has never been explained or established. House-to-house inquiries also revealed very little. There was no sounds of a struggle or screams heard, and no one was seen leaving the scene. The sisters were found to have been well-liked and were well-known and respected in the local area. They had no immediate family and neither had ever married. All they had was the shop and each other. They were described as independent and from a generation that was hard-working, proud and brave. Evidence to this effect is that on a previous occasion, Alice had been confronted by an armed robber in the shop, but had struck him with a broom and caused him to flee. So the sisters were the type to have a go, not cower. House-to-house inquiries early in the new year did, however, give police one possible lead. A neighbour living near the shop who had been abroad over Christmas came forward to police upon hearing about the murder when he returned to the area early in the new year. The neighbour reported that on December the 22nd he had seen a scruffy-looking man, like a vagrant, he described, knocking on the door of the shop at about 7.30pm. This would have been just after the shop had closed for the evening. Crucially, the man was knocking on the internal glass door of the shop and not the outer one. This same man was seen at the same time by a woman walking towards the shop. The witnesses described the man as being middle-aged with grey streaked greasy hair and was wearing a grey or brown jacket with dark trousers. An artist's impression was created and was widely publicised locally and nationally at the time. And if you look at this blog post on the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog, it's in the archives. The artist's impression is available there for you to look. I've also shared it on Instagram this week. Inquiries were made at hostels, night shelters and places frequented by down and outs. But this vagrant never came forward for the purposes of elimination and he was never traced. When all avenues of inquiry had been followed up and exhausted, the incident room was scaled down. The crime has been reappealed on numerous occasions over the years, including several times on central television appeals, and it's been the subject of a Crime Watch UK reconstruction. Still a known goal there, BBC, cancelling Crime Watch. But nobody has as yet been brought to justice for this cowardly murder. So what then can be said about the killer of Alice and Edna Rowley? Unfortunately, it's almost impossible to determine anything for certain. There's scarce information available about the crime, so to build up a picture of the killer depends largely on hypothesis. I do not believe this is the first crime committed by this man. This is a level of offending that's reached rather than started at, and it does not appear to have been a planned murder either, perhaps a bit more spur of the moment. For example, the offender may have conned his way in on some pretense, or pretended to have been ill even, planning to then steal in a distraction burglary. He may have been caught in the act by one of the sisters, then panicked and took the most drastic action possible and killed both. Neither of the sisters had been sexually assaulted, so sex can be discounted as a motive, and there's no suggestion that either sister had any enemies, or were involved in anything illegal or immoral. These people were the height of respectability, so this leaves robbery as a likely motive. But why only take such paltry items? There's no record of any money having been taken in a shop where there would more than likely be a cash float. Just some Christmas presents, that's all that was taken. This suggests that robbery was an afterthought, or it became an afterthought, and that the murder of the two sisters was unplanned. This is furthered by the method of murder, strangulation. It's a very spur-of-the-moment method, and it all points to a robbery going horribly wrong, 
and the killer just grabbing items to hand before fleeing, panicking after having killed two elderly women. This theory gains credence by the fact that police discovered that this had actually happened a few weeks before. A bogus waterboard official had called at the shop a few weeks previously and he'd got as far as the kitchen before being exposed as an imposter, although how this was ascertained is not revealed. Was this connected? Were the sisters targeted again by the same person? The bogus water official was reportedly never traced either. It's also important not to base the sole picture of a suspect on the artist's impression, although it's difficult because this was the only lead police had to go on, and the fact that any man matching the description was never traced, nor came forward to clear themselves, makes this man the prime person of interest. But it should not be stated with certainty that this is the face of the killer. This man could have been innocently asking for directions somewhere, and chosen a shop because of its focal point of knowledge of the local area. Or he could have been someone known to the sisters, or he may not even have recognised himself from the artist's impression, or he may not have even been a local man, he could have been a traveller passing through, or a long distance lorry driver or delivery driver. He's either an important potential witness, or he may of course be the killer. But either way he's never been traced, and if this man appeared middle aged in 1987, then he would be elderly himself now, if he is even still alive of course. So the artist's impression is rendered largely useless today. With no suspects, no forensic evidence and no leads, the investigation has remained inactive for many years now. It's frustrated detectives who have examined every piece of evidence and theory available over and over again and have examined any possible links with other unsolved crimes throughout the UK. None have been definitively linked however. The shop itself no longer exists now. Instead, an Islamic cultural and education centre stands on the site where it was. The murder of Alice and Edna Rowley is still unforgotten in the community where they once lived though, and the crimes are periodically reviewed by specialist teams of cold case detectives who urge anybody with information to get in touch to help. A 30-year anniversary reappeal is being issued this week, and hopefully it will bring information forward that means that the killer of Alice and Edna Rowley will no longer escape justice for this despicable crime. For our final case of this episode, we stay in the city of Birmingham and now go to the district of Northfield and to 1992. Overbury Close looks to be a standard run-of-the-mill estate, much like that's found in any town. It's a sprawling estate made up of semi-detached houses, a play park and two 12-storey blocks of flats which dominate the landscape. Tucked away opposite one of these blocks, away from the main estate, is a semi-detached bungalow situated next to a storage unit. It now sadly looks a bit ramshackle and the grounds are overgrown and it's unclear if the property is occupied at present. Regardless, the bungalow does have a dark history for it's just a little over 25 years since it was the scene of one of the most brutal and horrific murders in West Midlands police history. And as is fitting with the other cases covered in this episode, it is, of course, still unsolved too, and a reappeal has been released on the 25th anniversary of the shocking crime. The Smith family were everyday working class people, even down to having the most generic and popular surname in the country. This is how ordinary they were. The family consisted of 72-year-old Harry Smith and his wife, 73-year-old Mary, who were both enjoying their retirement years. The couple also had two children. They had Carla, who had married and lived in a different part of Birmingham, and Harold Jr. Tragedy had struck the Smith family some years before in 1980, when Harold Jr. had been involved in a serious road accident and as a result had been left confined to a wheelchair and requiring round-the-clock specialist care. Since then, the couple had had their bungalow specially adapted for Harold's wheelchair and Mary had devoted her life to caring for him, with Harry joining her in doing so upon retiring from his job as a mechanic a few years previously. The family were well-liked, well-respected churchgoers and very well known throughout the locality, with Harry being especially known as a regular character in the now-closed Traveller's Rest pub on Northfield's Bristol Road South. He was familiar for the habitual white cap he would always wear. 
By all accounts, the family were close and had perhaps pulled together some more after Harold's accident. Things like that tend to do bring families together, don't they? Even though Cathy had moved away with her husband, she still spoke to her family almost every day on the telephone. That was the kind of loving family that the Smiths were. I stress were. So when Cathy had not been able to speak to her family by telephone for a number of days since the end of November 1992, she grew thoroughly alarmed. In times like that, people always do tend to think that the worst has happened. And after several attempts contacting neighbours of the family and being told that no, nobody had seen them, a worried Cathy decided to contact police. A police patrol was dispatched to the house in Overbury Close, and when there appeared to be no signs of response due to repeated knocking, plus an officer heading around the back of the bungalow, a decision was made for officers to force their way into the property, and they did so. What they found there was a scene of absolute carnage and sheer horror. It was apparent from the moment police entered the bungalow that something had happened there. The place had been ransacked, with contents of drawers and cupboards and belongings strewn all over the floor. Moving throughout the property, police found no sign of the Smith family until they got to the master bedroom. Harry Smith was found lying on the floor with his hands tightly bound with one of his own neckties, whilst Mary lay on the bed, also with her hands tied tightly in front of her and again with one of Harry's neckties. Harold sat slumped in his wheelchair, his hands also bound and a sock used as a makeshift gag was stuffed into his mouth and secured with a dressing gown cord. The room was extensively blood-soaked and it was clear that all three had been dead for a number of days, possibly since just after the last time Cathy had spoken to them on November the 30th. It was only following the post-mortems on all three members of the family was it realised just how much of a deranged killer, or killers, police were hunting. Harry had been stabbed close to a hundred times, and severely beaten about the head with a blunt instrument. Mary had also been beaten and stabbed around the head, neck and chest, and an attempt to remove her underwear was reported as having been made, although there was no evidence that she had been sexually assaulted, and Harold also had severe lacerations and stab wounds to his neck, chest and head, and he'd also been beaten with a club as he sat helpless in his chair. The murder weapons were decided to have most likely been a five-inch bladed kitchen knife and a heavy wooden club, although these were not found at the scene. The police investigation for such a shocking crime was intense, and no clear motive for such a bloodbath was ever found. The family weren't found to have any enemies, and although the ransacking of the bungalow and the fact that a small amount of money had been taken would point to robbery, most robbers don't massacre an entire family. There had been a high number of burglaries within the area in the months leading up to the murders, however, but this is usually a get-in-and-get-out kind of crime, and this is a different level. There were no reports of anyone seen entering or leaving the bungalow on the night in question, no signs of forced entry to the bungalow, and no sounds of a struggle or screams were reported as being heard. A mass search of the local areas near Overbury Close for murder weapons or any discarded blood-stained clothing connected with the crime got underway, whilst police set to work looking at the local community to try to find any witnesses or try to establish a possible motive for why the Smith family had been targeted. Nothing conclusive was found in either, but a persistent rumour that police did discover was that Harry Smith was, wrongly as it was later established, rumoured to have enjoyed a big gambling win not long before he died. Was this the motive for the family's bungalow being targeted, a suspected large sum of money being in their property? Following the murders, nearly 1,700 people were interviewed and 350 written statements were taken. 340 vehicles connected to the area were checked and eliminated from the inquiry and in total, 1,400 lines of inquiry were followed up on and investigated. A police psychologist, Dr Paul Britton, who we actually met in episode 9 of the podcast, uh, Code of a Killer, had been brought in early on in the investigation and concluded after studying the evidence that the killer or killers had thoroughly enjoyed what they'd done and they could strike again if they weren't stopped. 
That left the whole community in fear with a deranged maniac on the loose. But the breakthrough response was never there throughout the initial investigation and despite a £6,000 reward for information, which was a big sum at the time, by the first anniversary of the murders, the investigation had just six police officers working on it. Crime sadly does not wait, and the investigation was wound down when police had little else to go on and manpower was needed elsewhere. But it has been reappealed now, as it's been 25 years this year since the crime. And now police have breakthrough technology in DNA so that they can make a fresh review of evidence that is still retained from the 1992 investigation. Detective Inspector Ian Ilf from West Midlands Police, part of the cold case review team, said, As part of our continual review of unsolved cases, we are taking the opportunity of the 25th anniversary of this most horrific case to appeal to anyone who has kept information that they may hold secret for all these years to come forward. I can't accept that the person who was responsible has kept this secret all their life. I believe that they would have shared what they did with someone else, maybe a family member or a friend. If you are that person, please come forward. There have been massive advances in DNA technology and we will be reviewing all the evidence we hold from 1992 to see if it sheds any light on new lines of inquiry. Is robbery enough of a motive for such a shocking and callous crime and what can be ascertained about those responsible? Firstly, it is likely that there was more than one killer. Even though Harry and Mary were elderly and Harold was confined to a wheelchair, this is still three people to immobilise which would surely be too much for a single killer. Burglars usually do work in pairs also and the different methods of attack, stabbing and bludgeoning, suggests more than one killer, at least two in my opinion. I also believe that the killers were either from or very familiar with the Northfield area. If not living there then perhaps having attended school or worked there at some point. The bungalow is set way off the main estate and it's adjacent to a utility building and opposite a block of flats. As it is a bit out of the way, it may have been targeted because of this. It may also have been apparent from a study of the property from outside that it was an old folks bungalow. For example, it might have been given away by rails attached to the outer walls or pathway to assist with mobility, which would highlight a vulnerable person living there. This would have been especially possible as the Smith family had had their bungalow adapted to cater for Harold's disability. A photograph taken in 1992 following the murders doesn't show anything such as this apparent from the road, but they may have been attached around the back. Did the killers see this and decide that a vulnerable and therefore easy target lived there? A study of Google Maps also shows many possible ways of egress from the scene that would only really be familiar with someone from the area. And of course, criminals operate in areas they are familiar with and comfortable in. I believe it is possible, even likely, that the Smith family, or at least Harry, were known to the killers, and that they were targeted deliberately because of the rumour of them enjoying a big gambling win, making robbery the motive here. I do not believe this was in any way a sexually motivated crime, despite reports of Mary's underwear being interfered with. If sex was a motive, I believe it would have been carried out, so no, in my opinion it's more likely robbery. Someone known to the family, perhaps a patron of the Traveller's Rest pub where Harry was a regular who would have known him from there, and he would have known, would also maybe have been invited into the bungalow, and this would explain the lack of forced entry. If not, then the killers could have entered the bungalow through an unlocked door and surprised the family. This could have been the front or rear door. At that time of year, it's dark not long after 4pm, but that's also too early likely to lock up for the evening. I believe that Harry, who was the most perceivable threat to the killers, was attacked first to immobilise him, possibly after challenging the intruders, and whilst he lay injured, then both Mary and Harold were bound and gagged, and then Harry was also. It is unclear whether the weapons were brought to the scene by the killers or were items used to hand that they found at the scene. The property was then ransacked but no substantial sum of money found and it's my opinion that individual members of the Smith family were tortured in full view of the others in an attempt to make one of them tell the killers where the money was in the house. 
It is unclear in what order this would have happened, but a chilling and distressing thought is that was Harold the most helpless member of the family made to watch his parents die a horrific and brutal death in front of him, unable to move due to his paralysis? Or was he targeted first as the person who both parents would be most devoted to and would wish to protect more? The killers here are likely to have offended before this crime, to leave no reported forensic evidence at the scene, no fingerprints, and to be able to access and egress without drawing attention to themselves shows an experienced offenders, although this may possibly have been the first murder. The angriness and complete overkill of the crime. After all, it takes some physical effort and almost two minutes in total to stab a person nearly a hundred times. Suggests that the killers are new to murder, that they had no level of control and almost did not know that enough was enough. It may even have been bloodlust that took them over, or likely influenced by a violent fantasy, emulating a violent horror movie that they'd seen. I believe that this places them at the younger end of the offending scale with a certain level of immaturity, so the mid to late teens to early twenties age range. Yet I do think that these had offended before, they must have spent a considerable amount of time at the property to do this horror, and did not flee upon the realisation of what they'd done. Once the line was crossed, they just didn't care. They took time at the scene and with the victims. These killers will likely have come to police attention before the murder somewhere, and likely following it. This isn't a first offence, not this level of violence. They are aware from the locality of this crime, and they may of course now be in prison for a different crime. They may have moved away or even emigrated, or they may even be in hospital or dead themselves. Or they may still walk the area. If they are still living, however, then I do not believe that a crime of this magnitude has not either been shared with someone in confidence out of guilt, or perhaps even bravado or as a threat. Somebody somewhere still likely harbours a guilty conscience and knows something that can end the enduring nightmare of the Smith's surviving daughter, Cathy. When she was interviewed some years after the murder about the cold case, Cathy gave her feelings. She said, I had everything I ever wanted. Loving parents, a nice home and a wonderful husband and family. I thought the world was wonderful and that bad things didn't happen. Then part of my family was suddenly stolen from me. I've never been dissatisfied with the police and I would always praise them. I know the case will never be closed. I know if anything does turn up, I will be the first to know. I think they're probably in some kind of prison now. I like to think that they're not walking around free. Part of me wants them to suffer like I'm suffering now, but I just want them to say sorry. To lose three people was beyond belief. One would have been bad enough. Can you even begin to imagine what Cathy must still feel to this day? Some disturbing cases this week, don't you agree? I think this week I decided to focus upon unsolved crimes because I personally think that it brings home the tragedy and injustice that killers still remain free, a bit more so at a time of year where people look forward to celebrating. Plus each of the three unsolved cases featured here this week have all taken place quite near to this time of year, give or take a few days, weeks. Each one is a horrific crime, and I firmly believe that the killers in each case here have more than likely killed before or gone on to kill again. Each is so horrific that it takes a certain mindset to commit atrocities such as these, and if you've done that once and got away with it, then you can surely do it again. Reappeals have been issued in recent weeks in the cases of the Smith family and Alice and Edna Rowley, and hopefully a reappeal in the case of Dr. K will follow suit. As we say, no one is forgotten here, and I think it's important to raise the awareness of some cases that are overlooked and sadly forgotten and unfamiliar like these. It's things like this that get cold cases to a wider audience, that get into people's minds and focus, and hey, something may just come out of it. Stranger things have happened. Should anyone have any information, then the cold case review team for any of these cases featured in this week's episode can be contacted through telephoning on 101 or information can be passed anonymously if wished to Crime Stoppers by telephoning 0800 555 111. 
Now I must stress I don't in any way claim to be accurate in my estimations about the killers in each case. It's just a hypothesis based on what I've been able to research about each crime and I do welcome debate and to hear people's thoughts on them. I'd welcome hearing these on the Facebook discussion group on what I hope will be a very active thread that I shall post up shortly. There is quite a bit to talk about this week, I'm sure you'll agree. I love as always to hear your thoughts and opinions on the cases. The cases of the Rowley sisters and Dr K can both also be found as blog posts in the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog archives, and the Smith family will be added to the blog in the coming days also. I do hope that you found this week's episode informative and entertaining, although disturbing and very tragic cases. And as this has been my final episode of 2017 before a short Christmas break, biggest massive wink wink there, I'd just like to end with a massive thanks to all of you guys who've listened to me this year and continue to. You all rule and your support makes the podcast what it is. I know I say that all the time, but it really does. Do love what I do and I hope that it shows through. Covering cases of note and unsolved, well, I think that's my bash at being a bit of a cracker, which is quite fitting really because it is Christmas after all. I have been and still am Paul, the true crime enthusiast, and I wish all of you guys a very happy Christmas and all the very best wishes for 2018. I shall be back very early in the new year, where I hope you'll all join me. So take care and be safe all, and I'll speak to you again soon. Sorry for the rubbish jokes, I really must buy more expensive Christmas crackers next year. Thanks guys, take care, goodbye for now.